Before we read our text this morning, I want to do a little scene setting. Acts, particularly the first half of Acts, can seem a bit staccato. It's boom, 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 boom. And you can come away thinking these are just a bunch of set pieces and not get the connection between them. And so I want to walk you through briefly the first few chapters of Acts to set up where we are in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 1, we have the ascension of our Lord. Jesus in his resurrected body has appeared before the disciples. He tells them to tarry in Jerusalem for a little while. And he says, you heard from me that John baptized with water and you will be baptized with the spirit not many days from now. And taking full advantage of one last opportunity to express to Jesus that they wholly and completely misunderstand what it is he's saying. The disciples look at him and say, is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus looks at them and says, it is not for you to know times or seasons fixed by the father, by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And then Christ, in a great mystery, bodily ascends. The disciples cast lots, replace Judas, and they wait in Jerusalem. And then the day of Pentecost comes. And there's a sound as of a mighty rushing wind that fills this room and cloven tongues as a fire appear on the shoulders and heads of the disciples. They begin speaking about the mighty works of God in every language under the sun. And people are astonished. They are hearing such things in these languages. And Peter delivers a sermon. And in that sermon, he tells the people that we live in an age of fulfillment. He preaches about the mighty works and miracles of God. He blames his audience for the crucifixion of Christ, yet says that crucifixion was according to the foreordained plan of God. He preaches that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and that Jesus' life and resurrection were in accordance with and the fulfillment of the scriptures. He preaches that Christ is God and King. In response to this, the crowd calls out to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter answers them and says, Repent. And be baptized in the name of Jesus for the promises for you and for your children and for all those whom God calls unto himself. And the Lord added 3,000 people to that church that day. 3,000 people. And those people were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And they were holding everything in common. Then we have Acts chapter 3. And Peter and John go to the temple. And they're there to pick a fight. You recall the last time I preached here, I gave a little nugget to the kids and said the difference between the Pharisees and Sadducees is the 
Sadducees rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. And Peter and John go to the temple to tell these Sadducees who controlled the priesthood about the doctrine of the resurrection that is fulfilled in Christ. And they begin that by typifying the resurrection coming upon a crippled man lying down at Solomon's portico, hoping to receive alms. And Peter says to him, look at me. The crippled man looks up at him. And Peter famously says, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we'll give to you. Rise and walk in the name of Jesus. And that man, displaying the power of the resurrection, gets up and walks and listen. He clings to these apostles. And then Peter delivers his second sermon in Acts. And in that second sermon, once again, to the crowd, he blames the audience for crucifying Christ. He declares that Christ is God. He calls him the author of life. He preaches the resurrection of Christ, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And he makes a call again to repentance. 5,000 people come to know the Lord that day. 5,000 people at the temple. But again, they'd gone there to pick a fight, like I said. And the Sadducees who control the priesthood and the temple economy and have a hegemonic regime over that hill in Jerusalem. They cannot abide the preaching of resurrection generally, and they sure won't tolerate the preaching of the resurrection of Christ specifically. They arrest the apostles and they hold them in custody overnight. And we begin reading in verse five of chapter four. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with honest, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. And all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. These apostles, having been arrested, have caused a stir. The Sadducean leadership of the temple have called together other elders, other members of the high priestly family. You remember Caiaphas is the one who presides over the illegal trial of Christ and orchestrates ultimately his crucifixion. And they're gathered together to put a stop to this doctrine of resurrection and this preaching about Christ And they ask the apostles a familiar question. They say, by what power or by what name did you do this? Keep in mind, that crippled man is still there the next day. He didn't leave. He wasn't arrested, but he ain't leaving. These guys who made me walk again, I'm going to stay here and hear what these guys have to say. How did you do it? This very question was asked by these same people, Sadducean leadership of the high priestly family. The week of our Savior's death, they had asked that same question to Christ. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? They asked Jesus in Matthew 21. And Jesus' response to those people was this. He said, I tell you what, I will answer your question if you answer my question. And Jesus' question to them was, where did the baptism of John come from? Did it come from God or did it come from man? Now, at this point, John's a hero. He had not only been famous as a preacher calling the people of Israel to repentance, but he had stood up to a wicked king and been put to death for preaching. The word of God, specifically for preaching that that king had engaged in sin. So he is beloved by the people of Israel. And these Sadducees can't tell Christ that John is of man because they'll lose their own power. And they sure don't want to tell him that he's of God because John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ. And so, like all politicians, talk amongst themselves They say, you know, we we don't know. We can't say. If they had lived in the 21st century, they would have put together a blue ribbon commission and come back with the same thing. So Jesus said, neither will I tell you. And so these same men had put the same question to our Lord, and now they're putting it to Peter. And here we might note what the book of Acts is really about. It is the people of God doing the work of God through the spirit of God. 
They are living out the very life of Christ just as we do today. I want you to look at Peter's response. Peter's response is Jesus. This is how we did it. This is the name we did it under. This is where we get our authority. It is Christ. But I want you to note Peter's posture, his state when he delivers this third sermon in Acts. Peter, we read, is filled with the Spirit. Now, there are a couple things I want to say about that. One is practical, and two is poetic. I'm going to give you the practical first. There's a disambiguation that needs to happen between the following words and phrases. Regeneration, filled with the Spirit, and Holy Spirit baptism. And I'm going to do it real quick. It's a parenthetical in the sermon. Regeneration is how you're saved. It is how Abraham was saved. It is how everyone has ever been saved, whoever was saved. It is how everyone will be saved in the future if they are saved. Regeneration is taking the old heart and giving you a new heart. Regeneration is our Lord making you into a new man. It is giving you faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That is what Paul is teaching at Ephesus. It is what he means in Galatians 3 when he says you are saved by faith alone and not by works of the law. And that faith is a gift, and that gift comes with regeneration. So regeneration, that idea precedes the book of Acts. Then you have the idea of Holy Spirit baptism. That's what Christ was talking about in Acts 1 right before his ascension. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That happens four times in the book of Acts. It happens Acts 2 at Pentecost. It happens in Acts 8 at Samaria. It happens in Acts 10 at Cornelius' house. And very mysteriously, it happens in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 with Paul and the disciples of John. And in each, if you put those together, you will see that that is not the same thing as being saved. Those people in Samaria, when the Holy Spirit falls on them, they're already saved. When the apostles are at Pentecost, they're saved before the day of Pentecost and so forth. And then you have the way in which Luke specifically uses the phrase filled with the spirit and full of the spirit. And he uses that before Pentecost ever happens. So if you go to Luke chapter one, you'll see that John the Baptist is filled with the spirit from the womb. You'll see that Elizabeth is filled with the spirit immediately before she says, blessed art thou among women and blessed art the fruit of thy womb. She said it in King James English. And and you'll see that Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, is filled with the spirit immediately before he regains the ability to speak. And it utters the, one of the great prophecies of the Bible. And it has one of my favorite verses, one of the great lines where he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and he has redeemed his people. And that's months before the birth of our Lord. You see that Christ himself is described as being full of the spirit in Luke chapter four, immediately before the temptation. 
You'll see the apostles are described as being filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. You'll see that Paul is described as being filled with the Spirit when he's at Ananias' house and the scales fall from his eyes. You'll see that Paul is described again as being filled with the Spirit when he is at Cyprus and he is sharing the gospel with a Roman proconsul. And there's this magician named Elimus who's trying to ensorcel this man. And Paul won't have a man getting in the way of his presentation of the gospel. And he's filled with the spirit and he blinds him, casts blindness upon the magician. You'll also see full of the spirit by Luke used to describe people of, you may say, high moral character, being made more into the image of Christ. So that in Acts chapter 6, when FBC Jerusalem is to appoint seven proto-deacons to handle a dispute in the church, they're to go find men full of the Spirit and wisdom. And that's not saying that they're saved. That would be tautological. Of course you're going to have men who are saved. But they're full of the Spirit. At the end of Acts chapter 13, you read that the church is full of the spirit and joy. And at the end of this chapter, you see that the church in Jerusalem is full of boldness and full of the spirit. So when Luke uses the phrase filled with the spirit, he uses it in two ways. One is a particular empowerment. That's what we have here. And two, as people being conformed more to the image of Christ. So that's the practical And if you want to go home with a concordance and be a Berean, you'll see all of that. But I want to give you the poetic. The temple they are at is the second temple. Now, you all know that when the tabernacle was dedicated, the spirit of God came down, the Shekinah glory of God. When the first temple was dedicated, The glory of God came down to that temple. That never happens with a second temple. Just doesn't. You'll never see it in reference to the second temple. It's just different. It's not as glorious. And so when Luke says that Peter is at the temple and he is filled with the spirit. Do you see the juxtaposition there? That the apostle of Christ is there and he is filled with the spirit and he is at a building that is not. And the student of the New Testament will read that the following are described as the temple. Paulette, Jesus Christ is the temple. I'll take it, take this temple down and build it back up in three days. You will see that Paul tells the church at Ephesus that the body of Christ is the temple. And you will see that he tells the church at Corinth that you're the temple, each of you individually. And what is the temple? The temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. It is the place where the spirit of God is present. And it is present here in Peter. And it is not present in this temple being presided over by wicked men. And so Peter, filled with the spirit, delivers his third sermon. And what does he say? Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. Peter does not seek glory for himself. He didn't say, I did it. 
He didn't say, if you give me money, I'll do it for you too. He said, I did. It was by the power of Christ. So in this sermon, Peter is saying that Christ has all power and authority. By this sermon, Peter again blames his audience three sermons in the book of Acts, and he has blamed his audience three times for the crucifixion of Christ. And this time it really hits because it is a direct correlation between these Sadducees and the crucifixion of Jesus. And he preaches that Jesus is resurrected. He is bodily resurrected. That is the key to our faith is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is resurrected and therefore Jesus still lives. So it is by the power of the living Christ that this man is made well. But I want to remind you, again, this is all in response to the same question that these same men asked our Lord the week of his death. And I said earlier a little bit about what Christ said to those Sadducees. Where did the baptism of John come from? And in typical fashion, Jesus kept going with a combination of opacity and clarity. So he says some things that you're not going to understand in the immediate context. But he also says some things that are just hot knife through butter. It is clear. And he concluded his discourse with the Sadducees in Matthew 21 by telling them a parable. He tells them the parable of the tenants. Kids, a tenant is somebody who rents land or a house from somebody else. And so these tenant farmers are at a vineyard owned by the master. And that vineyard has been fitted with a tower for protection and a wine press. And the time of the harvest has come. And the master of the vineyard sends forth three servants to the tenants. The tenants see these servants and they beat one and they kill another and they stone the third. And the master of the vineyard says, well, I'm going to send even more servants this time. The same fate befalls them. And then the master of the vineyard says, I will send my son. Surely they will listen to him. And those tenant farmers see the son and they say, this is the heir. If we kill him, we'll inherit this vineyard. And Jesus puts the question to the Sadducees, what should happen to these people who killed the son? And he said, and the Sadducees say, these wretches should receive a horrible end. And Jesus looks at them and says, have you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. And he who falls on this stone shall be broken into pieces. And the one on whom the stone falls will be crushed. 
And Matthew tells us the Sadducees knew he was talking about them. So they got it. Peter is here giving the words of Christ back to these same men. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Friends, that is a statement of judgment upon them. And it is terrifying. They had the prophets. They had the scriptures. They had the temple economy that preached Jesus. And they did not have eyes to see. And they did not have ears to hear. And instead, they had conspired with one another to kill our Lord. And Peter, in this moment, is telling these same people the words of Christ And you'll recall that the Lord promised the disciples that they would be dragged before kings, that they would be brought before synagogues and leaders and priests. But that they shouldn't worry about the words they would say. Because the spirit of God will speak through them. And if you ever wonder whether the spirit Spirit of God is speaking through you, ask yourself, are you speaking the words of Christ? And if you're speaking the words of Christ, the answer is yes. And here Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is preaching the words of Christ. And we must note that he is exhibiting great courage here. For he's saying the very words that would in part lead to the crucifixion of our Lord to the very people who orchestrated that. But Peter is holding on to a promise. That promise Jesus gave the disciples when he said the Holy Spirit would come upon you because he knows that he has been promised that he will be among the witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And friends, that happens in this book, in Acts. By the end of Acts chapter 12, the false king of Israel, King Agrippa, is dead. And Acts concludes with Paul In Rome, in the shadow of Caesar amidst the seven hills surrounded by pagan temples and buildings dedicated to gore and terror. He's arrested. And yet the book ends with these words that Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That the word of God is not going to be stopped by a few priests in Jerusalem. And Peter knows that. I read this past week a quote by Chesterton about courage, that it is a great paradox. That it embodies someone who is both willing to live and wanting to live, but embracing the idea that he may die. That's Peter in this moment talking to the very people who killed Christ and uttering these words of judgment. But he tells them that they've put him to death, but he also calls them to repentance. And Chad, you know that sometimes you sow seed on fallow ground ready for planting. And sometimes you sow seed among the thorns. 3,000 people saved at Pentecost and more added to their congregation daily as the Lord had appointed unto salvation. 
5,000 people saved the prior day preaching at the temple. But here, Peter is not preaching to fallow ground. He is preaching to thorns. But he makes the call to repentance and says there is salvation under no other name than by the name of Christ. And I want to tell you this morning on the authority of Scripture, there is salvation by no other name than by the name of Christ. And dear friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you need to repent of your sins today. You are not promised tomorrow. You are not promised the end of this service. You're not promised to get through lunch. Every moment you have is a gift from God. And you cannot and should not let this day go past without getting right and doing business with the Lord. You have been called to repentance. And if you're a child of God, you are to live a life in keeping and bearing fruit of repentance. But if you do not know him, you must come to him today. For he is either your cornerstone or he is the stone upon which you will be broken into pieces. So Peter calls them to repentance. They see the boldness. They see their common men, uneducated, but they know they were with Christ. Do people know you have been walking with Christ? Do people know that about you? If they don't know it about you, you are not walking with him. They better recognize Christ in your life, just like these Sadducees recognized that these Galileans had been walking with Jesus. And note the different response from the thorns as opposed to the good soil. At Pentecost, the response to Peter's sermon was, brothers, what shall we do? Here, the Sadducees again go into executive session. And perhaps, sotto voce, so that no one would hear They say, what do we do with these men? The response to the gospel is one of two things. What shall we do or what shall we do with the guy preaching? And they come out and they warn him away. And anybody with sense would have just said thank you and been on. But if there's one thing we know about Peter, it's that he ain't subtle. And so Peter and John answered and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When our risen Lord sees his disciples after the resurrection, he tells them that they are to be his witnesses. To make disciples. Among every tribe and tongue, it is our job to preach and speak about what we have seen and heard in the gospel. And nothing should stop you. Not wicked Sadducees, not fear of co-workers, not fear of family, not fear of embarrassment. You're a child of the king. You are co-heirs with Christ. There is no reason 
to worry. There is no reason to be hesitant. There is no reason to be concerned. You live your life and your daily vocation and you be bold in the name of Christ for that is our calling. The story ends with they can't put them to death. They can't keep them because they're scared of the crowds. And the crowds in the book of Acts are basically their own character, just like they are in the Gospels. And I have to tell you that crowds are fickle. Crowds are dangerous. And there are moments like this one where they, you can't do anything with the apostles. Just like in Matthew 21, they couldn't yet capture Jesus because the crowds were with them. But there are moments in Acts and obviously in the Passion of Christ where the crowds turn. There are times in your life where the crowd turns. That's okay. You have a glorious inheritance that you presently possess in Christ. And when that crowd turns on you, you are doing the work of Christ in the spirit of Christ. And you are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your holy and precious word. Thank you for empowering your church with the spirit to enable us to preach boldly the name of Christ. We ask that you continue to save people in this church, that these baptismal waters would continually be stirred with those who have repented in the name of Jesus. Give this body boldness in the coming week that we would live out the gospel and preach it in our sphere of influence. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Shane. What a wonderful message. He was a little quick.